welcome to another edition of the Read More Podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm Marva Hinton. Today I'm meeting virtually with Saricia J. Fennell from her home in the Bronx. Saricia works in publishing as a publicist, and she is the founder of the literary festival The Bronx is Reading. She has a new anthology out that she edited called Wild Tongues Can't Be Tamed, 15 Voices from the Latinx Diaspora. It features a mix of very well-known established writers like Elizabeth Acevedo, E.B. Zaboy, and Meg Medina, along with exciting new voices addressing various aspects of the Latinx experience. Saricia, this is such a beautiful anthology. I thank you so much for coming on Read More to talk about it. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so excited to chat with you. The essays in this book are just so gripping. Uh, In many cases, the writers are showing us how they came to find their place in the Latinx diaspora. And the diversity is just so fascinating. Let's start with how you came up with this idea for the anthology and how you chose these particular writers. Absolutely. Um, So fun fact, this anthology started out as me thinking about (laughs) wanting to bring together a diverse cast of writers to sort of write uh, myths and retellings from the Latinx diaspora. Um, And it sort of, the idea pivoted once the election started taking place, uh, which I won't even name that person because they are currently out of office. Um, And, you know, it, there were so many things happening in the media. There were so many um, just disrespectful stereotypes about you know, Latinx people, but also black people. And I started thinking like, huh, interesting. So I'm being, my identity is being attacked from both sides, right? From being a a black person navigating this world, but also my Latinx side. And I decided, you know, who can I bring together to sort of just talk about different things that impact the community, different ways that people see our community, but also things that I needed as a young person, even as a young adult, as a college student, as an adult now, um, all of these topics that we kind of don't talk about, whether it was, you know, the bad man or machismo or, um, you know, what it's like to struggle with mental health and uh, just various different things. And I was just like, I admire people like Meg Medina, Elizabeth Acevedo, uh, they're writing wonderful things. You know, Lillian Rivera, who's from the Bronx. And so I just knew, I said, okay, there are all of these wonderful people who are already published, who are talking about wonderful things in their writings. And I think that they're going to, you know, really help this anthology come to life. And then I know a slew of other writers who, you know, weren't traditionally published yet. And I just said, okay, these are the people I want to bring to the table. And the other thing that I'm always talking about, especially if people follow me on Twitter, I go on several rants about where are all the black Latinx people? Like where, where are we in film? Where are we in literature? Like where are we? And so I decided if I'm going to do this anthology, I must make space for um, black Latinx voices because, you know, I want to make sure that I'm walking the walk and not just talking the talk. And so new voices like Khalil Haywood and Janelle Martinez, you know, I had to bring them to the forefront. And it's also, there's a huge lack of Central American voices. I think, 
you know, we have a wonderful <laughs> bookshelf filled with Mexican writers, but Honduran, Panamanian, you don't really, you don't really see us um, on the on the shelf. And so, you know, I just decided this is going to be great because we'll have a mix of people who are fan favorites and then people that you get to discover and um, watch them as their career grows. Well, it's interesting to me that you're talking about your dual identities there um, because for me, some of the most compelling essays in this anthology were from the Afro-Latinx perspective. And, you know, it's a group I like to think that is becoming more visible, but still, you know, depending on where someone grows up, it may be that, you know, when they hear the word Latino, they do not think black. And so they don't realize that there are black people from Latin American countries who speak Spanish and they, you know, there's just a disconnect there for people. They just don't understand this. What do you hope readers will gain from hearing this perspective? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. Uh, my, my biggest thing with this anthology has been it is for the community, right? And that's that's a given. Like it has Latinx in the title, so hello, it's screaming at at those readers and those individuals. But for the people who are the outsiders, right? The people looking in, they already have this idea in their mind of what a Latinx person looks like, what that individual is supposed to represent. And most of the time, just like you said, they're not thinking about black Latinx. They're not thinking about indigenous Latinx and, you know, or queer Latinx, you know, if we're being honest, like all of the, you know, our marginalized people within the community, it's just an afterthought. And so I, you know, I want them to pick up this book and say like, holy crow. Okay. I, I got, I got this story, which is what I expected, but wow, you know, Pariso Negro and like talking about Panama and the black community there, that is something that just I never knew about. And it's enlightening that there is a whole thriving community of black people in this country that speak Spanish, you know. And so that's I want them to feel um, invited into a glimpse of our lives so that they can see that we are real people. You know, Afro Latinx people do exist whether you don't see us on your screen or hear us on the radio or really see us in books, like we are here and you need to recognize that um, there's more than one type of individual that can identify with this community. Well, you have an essay in the anthology about your experience as a black Honduran. And you mentioned, just like we talked about, there's so many times people would look at you and that didn't register with them. They didn't realize that you were Latinx. Um, you go in talking about your family, how there's just so much diversity in terms of skin color, and yet there's still a lot of anti-Black racism that you had to deal with. Um, you talk about having to straighten your hair from an early age, and you say when your mom came from Honduras, she was told, do not identify as Black. What was it like for you to actually explore your family's history and then share it like this with the broader community? Oh, yeah. So I definitely am not going to lie. I struggled a bit with my essay because, you know, I think with any family <laughs> trauma or history, when you're trying to dismantle uh, different things, right? It's basically internalized racism, colorism, 
all of the isms that you can think of. And, and within the Latinx community, these are topics that we don't normally talk about. These are things that we, we close the door on, you know, we sweep under the rug and it's just like, you know, there's a problem here. We know that this is an issue, but we're not going to talk about it. Instead, we're going to talk about, you know, this wonderful other thing <laughs> that's happening. And so, for me, it's it's just been an ongoing research thing since I was about eight years old, you know, when I finally learned about identity, when, you know, outsiders were telling me who I was and I didn't even know. I, you know, it's like when you grow up in a, in a specific environment and you're just conditioned to see the same type of people or the same type of thing, you know, you get comfortable in that and you, you learn from your community. And so when I was taken out of my community of color, which mostly had black and, and Latinx people and put into this white environment, that was the first shock for me that I knew I was really different. And I, and I started to grapple with that. And as I got older, I just found myself always asking questions like, well, why, why didn't you identify, you know, as a black person here in this country? And it was obvious because of the way black people were treated. And it, 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 it became this hierarchy thing, which I think we're still navigating. And, you know, is also the issue with colorism. It's the closer you are to whiteness or the closer you put yourself to whiteness, it comes with all of these benefits, supposedly, right? You're supposed to be treated better. You're supposed to get better jobs, be better educated, and et cetera, and et cetera. And so I can understand the logic in the, in the late 60s and the 70s as, you know, these people were coming over and, and seeing how, oh, a person that's darker skinned is treated this way okay, then I'm not going to, you know, identify as that, but I'm also an immigrant. I don't really know English. So it's clear that I have this um, language barrier. So I'm dealing with all of these other things. And I think what isn't talked enough about in immigration stories is, is uh, if you're black <laughs> and a Spanish speaker, I just feel like the, the, the pressures and the challenges are not even twofold, it's almost like three times, four times worse because you have a language barrier, right? Which is something that all immigrants are going to have. You, you're, you're not a citizen, you're trying to work towards that, but then you're also black, you present black. And so now you have two things that you are trying to like navigate in the place that's supposed to be the land of opportunity. So I try not to, you know, fault my family and my mom for identifying that way. But then talking about colorism and not knowing, you know, being conditioned as a young person, you get out of the shower and you put on you put on the bleaching cream and it's like if this is, you know, this is what the parents, this is what the elders are telling me to do, I'm going to do it. I don't know why, but they're the ones passing on this knowledge. But then realizing, like, wait a minute, <laughs> you're having me do this because you have an issue with the, the color of my skin. And we need to talk about that. We need to unpack that a little bit. And so it has been painful conversations, you know, writing it uh, sort of like all of these floods of memories came back and just the conversations that I had and all of the work that um, I continue to do. What I tell people is, 
I, I didn't just like learn about this stuff and then, you know, wake up the next day and say, okay, well, all of my problems are fixed. No, this is a lifelong journey. It's lifelong work. I have to continuously have conversations with the people in my family and call them out when they say, you know, anti-black things, when they are being, you know, a proponent for colorism, when they are telling me, oh, Cerecia, your hair, like, it looks really great, but don't you think you should like pull it back in the ponytail? Like I still get those comments and I, you know, I've had natural hair for like 16, 17 years now. And like, it still comes up and I, and I have to tell them like, Hey, you're doing that thing again where, you know, you're not letting me live in like my natural God given state. And you're trying to, you know, put me closer in this box to a white individual. And that's not where I want to be. And so I tried to like condense that in my essay without going too much into it, but um, but yeah, it's it's been it's been a journey. It still is a journey, and I'm hoping that people will read that essay and just like if they're old enough, like right, if they're adults, because I think this um, anthology will have crossover into the adult space for sure. And I feel like if you are an adult or um, you're raising a young person or you're an auntie and aunt whoever right because we all have our hands in the community when it comes to young people and and they learn from us they they you know want to be us emulate us i'm hoping that your eyes will open up and and you can say like oh that thing is a red flag you know like let's not condition um this this person to be thinking about how they can be closer to whiteness let's let's have a conversation about this um, and then also talking to people about where they come from in their identity while they're young. <laughs> so, you know, that they're not like me at eight or nine years old being like, I don't know where, where am I from? I don't know where we come from. You know, I don't know these things. So just being more um, communicative and explaining to young people like this is where you come from this is the actual name of this dish that you eat. I know lots of people who are like, oh, I've had that before. Yes, you know, it's like Caribbean food, Haitian food, Jamaican food, but like they don't have the exact name for it. It just happens. Um, but I think we just need to make sure we're educating ourselves, educating, you know, the young people in our life and passing these history, passing these histories down so that they have the language to talk about some of the things that, you know, we couldn't. And I think it's it's evident in a lot of the essays, uh, we're tackling different things, but um, I feel like in some of the essays, we didn't actually put a word to what that thing is that we're calling out. And so I'm hoping people will read it and be able to figure that out for themselves. Well, Cerecia, the anthology was just really enlightening for me in so many different ways. You know, I discovered places I'd like to visit, like that community you talked about in Panama that uh, Khalil Haywood writes about. And E.B. Savoy's essay made me look at Haiti in a completely different way. You know, I had never thought of it as a Latin American country. Um, also, as someone who is learning Spanish, I had to look up some words here and there to make sure I was understanding what I was reading. And I guess you, you sort of touched on this already, but I, I want to get a better sense of what you hope, you know, people like me who are not Latinx will get from this anthology because it is geared toward young people. But like you mentioned, I'm sure there are going to be a lot of adult readers like me. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm so happy to hear that, um, you know, you, you read the work and then you did some research. I love when I read books and I'm like, I got to Google this thing or like go to a dictionary and do this because it's a part of the learning experience. And I, I, I love that. I'm so excited for you. Um, but that's exactly what I'm hoping that people will, will learn is, you know, discover these new, um, not new, but discover these communities that exist and have existed, you know, for years that no one really pays attention to. I would like for them to see the other side of the coin, you know, um, to just open up their minds and, you know, to think about the people in their lives. I, I hope that, you know, it's sort of like a mirror, a window, you know, we talk about that a lot, but that's exactly what I'm hoping here. And I hope that like, adults will read this book, educators will read this book and find ways to engage with people from this community. Um, because I think a lot of times, especially educators, um, they're always searching like, how do I connect? you know, with this person, or they think, oh, that person must be this, you know, so it's like a specific stereotype, but it's like, no, there might be something else going on. Um, like, for example, you know, Lillian Vivera's essay tackles a lot of um, things in the in the Latinx community. I want to talk about um, suicide. So for just a moment, for all of those listeners out there, if this is triggering for you, please, you know, take a moment, skip a beat. Um, but this is a huge issue in, in, the, in the Latinx community among Latinas, and it's because of the pressures at home and just the way, uh, you know, the culture is. Um, a lot of uh, home duties, whether it's picking up your siblings, going grocery shopping, like a lot of these adult duties are placed on um, young, young girls, and it's, they have the pressure of that, right, home life, but then the pressure of I have to also be a good student, I have to be a good daughter, I have to be a good this, and it, it just takes its toll, and mental health in the Latinx community is also something we don't talk about, so all of these things, you know, and I'm like, this is an amazing essay, because now you have something that you can use as a conversation starter, <laughs> you know, for, for people who are going through these things, um, and so that's how I hope it's used. Use it as a conversation starter. Use it if you want to discover, you know, more about the community. Um, read it with a friend. You know, take your time with these essays. Go back to them and reference them. Um, and like exactly like you were doing, you know, go and go and do a Google. Go and go and, um, you know, make it an interactive learning experience. Look up the people. They're real people. Look, look them up and, and see what you know, what they're into, what, what they're talking about online. <laughs> well, that was actually going to be my next question because you do tackle so many very important issues in this anthology, like the mental health you're talking about. Uh, there are also some essays that deal with queer identity. And so anytime you kind of go against the stereotypes about Latinx people, you can experience some friction in your family or among your friend group. I, I wanted to ask you, why that was so important that you get those voices in there and talk about these issues, especially in a book that is for, uh, you know, young adults. So many people are struggling with stuff like that, you know, where you're like, okay, I have to be this one way because this is, this is what it's supposed to be. But then we, as young people, you know, when I was a young person, I always wanted to explore, right? I always wanted to know, like, 
you know, what's out there, what's this, what's that. And I feel like, you know, home life was a little bit um, confining, you know, my, my family, my elders gave me room to grow and to ask questions and things like that. But that was like, not the norm. I think it was because I was the fifth child. <laughs> and so like, you know, as, as, uh, as they have more kids, <laughs> I want to say the parenting gets a little bit looser because they're like, okay, I can't be this strict because this is what I learned. So I had it a little bit easier than what, you know, my other siblings did. But I think about that a lot, you know, how queerness is not spoken about in in our community it's not an okay thing right because our community also tends to be very religious and so if you're not very very religious there's also an issue with that and so it was important for me to include voices that could talk about these things and let them know like it's okay for you to question whatever it is you're questioning because that is a part of life you know and you have to figure it out and Hopefully you have people in your life that you can go to and ask questions and they can guide you as you figure things out. Um, but basically including these voices for me was, uh, once again, like to, to sort of let people know like, oh, this is the key to unlocking the conversation that I've always wanted to have with my family or a friend or, you know, someone I could confide in. Um, I just, I want people to, to know that it is okay to feel what you're feeling, to go through what you're, you're going through, to know that you're not the only, you know, person who hasn't felt Latinx enough, to know that you're not the only person who is questioning or might be gay or a lesbian, or you know what, could be genderless, right? Because you're still figuring it out and that's okay. So that was really important to me to have people from those communities talk about that and not just me. <laughs> Well, Sericia, I would like to just switch gears for a moment and talk about what you like to read. I know you work in the publishing industry, so you're constantly around books. Do you have what I like to call any go-to books that you find yourself reading over and over again? And if you could share what some of those are, that'd be great if you do have them. Oh, yes. Um, I have a couple. So I love Octavia Butler. And Parable of the Sour is, like, one of my all-time favorite reads. I, I think I read it once a year. Um, <laughs> James Baldwin, pretty much um, any of his essays. Uh, you know, I feel like when I'm just feeling like I need that fire in me because I'm also an activist, I'll just, like, pull, pull up one of his essays, read it, and I'm like, I'm fired up. Let's do this thing. Um, I love Matilda as well by... Uh, it's Roald Dahl, and, and so I have, like, a wonderful edition that I got from a Scholastic Children's Book Fair a couple of years ago that's so pretty. Um, so I actually keep that one at my nightstand where I'm just, like, I feel like laughing, so I'll, like, read a chapter from um, that book. But, oh, there's so, there's so many amazing books. I'm really picky with nonfiction, but I like stuff that um, fires me up. Um, like right now I'm reading um, for Brown Girls with uh, Sharp Edges and Tender Hearts by uh, the Latino Rebels founder Prisca uh, Durkis, um Mojica Rodriguez. And she's talking about some of the stuff that I tackled in my essay. And I'm like, huh, 
look at that colorism. Um, and she's, she also mentioned um, something about volun, uh, voluntourism, which is something that it was a term I wasn't familiar with, but it was basically another term uh, for missionaries that like go into other countries and try and help, you know, the poor people. And like that chapter alone was just so powerful for me. It was something that I went, I Googled the term as well. And so that learning experience of figuring out like, oh, interesting, this is another Central American writer, you know, from the global South who's writing about things um, that I didn't even think about, you know, because I'm Honduran American. I, you know, I wasn't born in Honduras. So this is a different perspective. So I like work books like that, that like make me think and is sort of in conversation with some of the topics that I'm already talking about. Well, I want to ask you also on the flip side of that, are there, is there a book that everyone seems to love and, uh, you know, it's critically acclaimed, also has a lot of readers and talk about it all the time, but it just didn't hit you that way. You don't really, uh, doesn't really vibe with you and maybe you couldn't even finish it. <laughs> I've definitely put books down that I couldn't finish. Um, trying to think. I mean, honestly, a lot of the classics um, that feature like straight white characters. <laughs> I mean, insert anyone you think, The Catcher in the Rye, like any one of those where I'm like, this is this is not it for me. No. Um, but that book mainly comes to mind right now. Um, and also a little bit The Great Gatsby. I did finish it, but, like, I feel like so many people are like, this is, like, you know, the best book and blah, 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 blah. And I'm just like, well, the copyright is up now, so I can't wait to see all the retellings because they might be better. <laughs> Though I did enjoy The Great Gatsby films, um, you know. Film is, is a nice way of storytelling. So usually if I put the book down, I'm like, I'll watch the film because acting is a little bit different. <laughs> well, what are you working on right now? I know you're a big push for the anthology right now and promoting that. Are you already working on another project or just what's going on? Yes, um, I'm working on two things. It's another essay collection. Um, this one would just be all essays about my life. Um, so I'll be revisiting some of those uh, childhood traumatic experiences, uh, but also adult stuff too. And um, just what it's been like to, to be a young black woman in America. I'm laughing because I'm like, mm, there's so many like essays about that already, but of course I'll put my own spin on it because it's my lived experience. Um, and then I'm also working on a Honduran Garifuna-inspired fantasy. I've been talking about this fantasy for a couple of years. I've been working on it since 2015. So I am hoping uh, to finally finish it um, sometime this year, maybe 2022. We'll see. But I'm definitely taking my time with it because there are no Honduran fantasy YA writers. So I want to make sure it's like chef's kiss. Well, I feel like we can always use more essays about the black American woman experience. So don't let that stop you. You know, I don't think anyone from the dominant culture says, Oh, there's, there, gosh, there's just too many of my, there's too much of my voice out there. I need to let somebody else speak. So 
by all means, write that. I can't wait to read it. <laughs> Thank you. So where can readers find you online? Oh, um, wonderful. You can find me at SJ underscore Fennell. So that's F-E-N-N-E-L-L. Um, across all social platforms. Um, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, which is fun, but I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> okay, well, Saricia J. Fennell, thanks so much for coming on to talk about your work. It's just been a pleasure. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. You can find out how to win a free copy of Wild Tongues Can't Be Tamed on our website, readmorepodcast.com. And if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also support Saricia and the show through buying the book on our site. Follow us on Twitter at Read More Podcast and like us on Facebook. Join us again next time for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton reminding you to read more. <laughs>